Hello and welcome to another edition of Living on the Edge Chaos Podcast. This is episode 111. My name is Aaron Maurer and this is a podcast dedicated to pushing the boundaries of this thing called life with an intentional focus on balance, education, technology, and many other concepts that I believe will help us find some pathways if we push our comfort zone boundaries to the edges of the chaos. My goal is to bring to light ideas, questions, people, and books that are going to spark new ideas for positive change and growth within ourselves. Let's get going. Woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs. Talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like caffeine for the brain. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited about this podcast, episode 111. Uh, I'm excited for it for many reasons. For those that have been a longtime listener to the podcast, Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast, normally it's just me, the tall, bald, nerdy guy, ranting about something, or I have a guest that I've really become fascinated with within their work. And today, we're going to level this up even to a whole new level, um, and we're going to have several guests. And I haven't had a roundtable discussion, actually, on this podcast. I was going back to look to see if I actually have ever done it. Um, and I used to do this, actually, it was about 50 episodes ago, which most of you probably weren't even listening back when I was recording, um, doing really nerdy stuff. So if you really want to go back and listen, we were actually discussing Stranger Things with a bunch of middle school teachers and talking about the philosophies and theories of Stranger Things into life. Um, so if you want to go down a, a rabbit hole of pure nerdiness, you can scale way back. But today, we're going to have a roundtable discussion on something um, I think is going to speak to all of us, no matter who you are, whether you're a parent, um, an educator, um, just something, someone that just happened to stumble onto this podcast. Um, we're going to be talking about the book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Accor. And so this is something that's new for me on the podcast. Um, we're going to be doing a roundtable discussion um, once a month on a book. And you can head to coffeeforthebrain.com backslash books2020 to see the selections of books so you can read and follow along. And if you want to join and participate and be a member of the discussion, you could sign up there on that page and, and check it all out. So it's building momentum. And these brave souls are going to be the first test guinea pigs for this uh, format, something new that hasn't been done on this podcast. And so before we dive into the content of this book um, and kind of explain what it is and, and, and go through some conversation of the principles, I want to introduce our guests to the show. I'm very excited to have them on. I'm happy to call them friends and colleagues. And they're taking time off of their break where they should be uh, recharging and, and rejuvenating their souls for the next uh, wave of, of education that we have going on. Uh, but let's dive in and have them um, introduce themselves of who they are, what they do, and, and all that good stuff. And so, um, Anne, I'm going to put you on the spot. We'll have you go first um, and let everybody know who you are and uh, what you do. Great. Uh, I'm Ann Craig. Um, I'm a education consultant um, at the Mississippi Bend AEA, and um, I get to work with teachers in a couple of different settings, one for school improvement efforts, and then also uh, working with teacher leaders, getting to talk with them about how to engage with adults um, in learning settings and coaching settings um, and, and different things like that. So areas that I'm definitely passionate about in education. Um, and I guess outside of that, I'm a mom and a wife and um, just a person that's passionate about fitness and being creative, um, trying to live my life to the fullest uh, while I can as a working mom, for sure. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa, what about you? Um, so I'm Lisa Hawker, and I um, also work at Mississippi Bend AEA, primarily as a literacy consultant, um, but I'm also on the statewide school and improvement team, which means that I'm on the smaller subset of consultants that partner with the Department of Ed to basically get in and support school improvement efforts at the ground level with school and district leadership teams. Um, like Anne, I'm also a mom. I have two kids, six and eight, I'm super ready for them to go back to school. Love them, <laughs> but man, <laughs> it's a struggle. Um, and I've been married for nine years uh, to my husband, Justin, and you know, right now I just, I'm, I'm uh, being a mom, right? Like I'm trying to like mom it up and kind of balance that <laughs> and uh, some personal life and friends with work. So that's kind of, it's my little story. Awesome. Well, welcome and thanks for, uh, for joining us. And last but not least, we have Rachel. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Rachel Anderson, and um, my position is also a literacy consultant at the Mississippi Bend AEA. Um, my Really, my job is very similar to Ann and Lisa's, um, uh, working with schools to improve um, basically around literacy, but um, you know, also a part of a lot of the regional trainings that the AEA puts on and um, on all the committees, it seems like. <laughs> I'm not, I'm the only difference is I'm not a mom. Um, I do have fur children um, and I love to cook and garden when it's not 20 degrees outside. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm a nerd just like all of us. So that's why I'm here. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. So I want to want to set the stage of this too, so people listening into the show kind of understand and why there is this maybe subtle shift to the podcast a little bit. And, and I think even starting with this book, and and I know for us, we have a group of us that where we work at, at the AEA who have been reading the Happiness Advantage book, and and we've been trying to meet every couple of weeks and and have some conversations. And um, as I started to share this podcast out, what was fascinating is is like I've I've found other groups of teachers reading this at the same time. So I'm really excited that there's um, this book is still around even though it's not like it was just published a couple months ago. It's been around for, for many years. Um, and, and with that being said, as, as you're listening to the podcast today, um, you know you can check the show notes, but what we're looking for is your thoughts and ideas and feedback. And so as we have these conversations, we'd love to hear from you. I think one of the things that my goal, and I think even the work we do, whether we're podcasting or not, is, is this engagement piece. So as you're listening and you agree or you have other thoughts or ideas or links or suggestions, reach out to us, let us know, and we'll highlight those in the next 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 podcast because what we're going to be doing with this particular book is doing two episodes so we're going to cover the first four principles of the book in this episode and then the other three and then listener feedback and comments and questions um, in, in, in the next round there. But I think for me, what, what started this, and, and probably a lot of you um, in this group has um, as well before we dive into the actual book, is I think in education anyways, there's been so much focus on standards and assessment and data and you know PLCs and all these things that are important, not to take those away, but something that kind of has been left to, to, to the backdrop because you can only do so much is this idea of like the social-emotional well-being. And I and I think this book to me really resonated um, at first when I joined, to be honest, I was like, and this could be another one of those cheesy kind of feel good books. Um, it was really my thought and it wasn't that way. Um, and so this book really kind of struck a nerve because I think for me, it opened up the idea of like, we actually have to like do something about this. And we've been having these conversations. I know behind the scenes, my wife's a teacher and I know they've been talking about it. And it's not just social emotional well-being for 
our students and our schools, but also for our personal lives and like how do we take care of ourselves in, in, in all these realms. And so the idea here is we're sharing this is that you, the listener, hopefully you don't feel alone in those thoughts. We're all grappling with them. And just because we read the book, we're not experts, but we're trying to figure it all out. Um, and so we just want you to, you know, to be part of this journey along with us. And so if we dive into the book here, um, and we're not, we won't explain every single element, but for those that maybe haven't had a chance to read it, um, let's just start with the foundation of the book in terms of like the kind of the elevator pitch of what this book's about to set some context for the principles we're going to be, be speaking about. And so, um, you know, as, as it stated on the, on the back of the book here of, of the cover, and you can check this out, obviously, anywhere you want to look, um, it, the book has different research-based principles that can be followed to help you be more productive, creative, and better at solving problems. Um, and I think those are all things we're all trying to figure out whether we're reading this book or not. But um, how would you guys kind of phrase this book as you, we, you've read it, we're kind of continuing to have conversations, but what is the foundation of this book? So we, we kind of lay that groundwork before we dive into some of the nitty gritty details. You know, one of the things that um, I'm thinking about as I have been going through this is just this idea of rewiring your brain uh, for happiness. And so I think like, as we talk about it, we'll probably have a lot of education ease coming through. But like you said, Aaron, it's really about how to rewire your brain just for life. Um, in, in your profession or outside of your profession. Um, for me, um, I like to think about like, this is 40 for me right now, right? Like I'm a mom, kids working. And so this book for me, the, at the foundational level, it's helping me think about my social emotional well-being, um, and what I need to do with my brain in order to find more satisfaction in all aspects of my life or just to be able to live in the present. Um, so just that, that piece about rewiring was pretty key for me. Um, you know, Erin, you mentioned that idea of social, emotional, mental health, not just for kids, but for adults. And as we've kind of gone through this next wave of looking at social, emotional learning competencies for kids, Something that's really stood out to me is the idea that like you can't have dysregulated adults or unhappy adults um, and have them try to impact positively kids. Because when you have dysregulated adults, you're going to have dysregulated kids. And so when I think about that, it makes me think of that, um, you know, when you're on a plane and the flight attendants are teaching you about like, hey, if we go down, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. So that makes me think about um, just this idea of self-care. Like if you have empty batteries, you can't help other people. If you are um, miserable or stressed out, like as much as you might try to positively impact people, it's, it's virtually impossible because someone's going to lose, right? So that's really that, that first piece for me, um, just the self-care lens. But from an organizational standpoint, I think – um, you know, I had this administrator that I worked with very briefly, um, but he is basically a god to his old staff. And his whole motto was, you have to feed the teachers or else they'll eat the kids. Mm-hmm. And it's really not, you know, literal, but I mean, who doesn't like food, right? Kids love food, adults <laughs> love food. But it's this idea of are we creating um, an emotionally safe and happy place for our adults to come every day? How are we building positive assets within our adults? How are we getting a positive culture so that people want to come to work um, so that they aren't eating the kids, not, you know, not just the kids, but their coworkers are having this 
bad feeling about the organization or the district that they're working with. Um, and so those were really two, two kind of themes or lenses that I've really kind of, kind of sharpened as I've been reading this book. How do I take care of myself so that I can be uh, more positive and successful, but also how do I help nurture a positive culture um, where I work? And I would just add to that, that, I mean, within every chapter of this book, the brain is key. I mean, it's, you're able to manipulate and change your brain in, in ways that we don't even know the possibilities of. So um, I think that that's what's really like hooked me in most of all for this and could sum up pretty much any chapter. There's the brain research behind it. And I mean, you're in control of your brain. It's pretty crazy. It is. Yeah. Would, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like what Rachel just said kind of makes me think about what you said, Aaron, when you're like, this isn't, you know, is this a feel good, feel good book? Like, the fact that it's grounded in physiology and neurology and neuroscience like makes it that much more credible. Like we're not just here trying to like foof things up about happiness. Like it's legit. Yeah. And that's where like I was thinking too, when Lisa, you were talking about dysregulated adults and I, my wife and I have these conversations all the time. Like when we see educators and I'll also put slash parents or slash anyone that works with other humans. So, um, it's beyond just a classroom, but my wife's a teacher. So we, we do a lot of venting every day at the end of the, the day, but like this idea where we have such a, a high demand of expectation for students, but then in our, the personal lives, we don't hold our own selves to that same standard. And it's just like, how do we even bring awareness to that? You know, it reminds me of uh, the very, the very beginning quote that's in that book by John Milton, that the mind is its own place and itself can make a heaven, a hell, a hell of heaven. And I'm thinking about that even as a parent, like, right, like literally this morning, we are dealing with a situation um, with one of my children, you know, every day brings its own new horizons. Um, and <laughs> You know, I the, my my first reaction was the reaction of a twelve year old Aaron of I'm just going to be angry and I'm going to throw a temper tantrum in the adult version and you know that's just going to solve everything. And I had to like really like take time to like you need to figure this out because if you act this way in front of your child, um, what are you teaching? And then two, how can I get upset that they made a uh, not a very wise decision because they're they're a kid, right? And it's like this whole balance of I found myself going down that same pathway of like this is wrong, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, and you know, and thank God I wheeled myself in. But it's this whole thing about being in control, and like that's the thing what I find with like with this book too, like it's so grounded in the brain, right? But I can read it and I can head nod, but then when the emotions take over, I don't always think through that lens. I think that like the goofy brain, however I've been wired up to this point. And so I always find like, how do you build the steps in to be able to use and apply the things in the book? Um, you know, to, so when the moment happens, you're ready and prepared. I think I got to add, oh, sorry, go ahead. You go in. I just, I, I want to connect to that. I think like part of it for me has been talking about the things that we're learning about, whether or not it's this book or this idea of dysregulation. Um, so that when we are in those moments at our house, we're not alone with it. I just, I got to share this quick story. Um, my kids and I were cleaning our basement, um, a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, we were probably knee deep in toys 
and I was getting pretty dysregulated and maybe even going into to steal your phrase, Aaron, my 12 year old self. And one of my boys, he just said, mom, you seem pretty dysregulated right now. And I, I was like, yeah, I, I am right now. And he was just like, well, what, what's making you so dysregulated? Say more about that, mom. And he was able to like, to coach me through in that moment. And, you know, I've done the same for him. I mean, it's, it's been some reciprocity with us. Um, and I think, there's a lot of power in um, having those moments, like with kids, with colleagues, with whomever, where you're not just like the most perfect version of yourself and you can show, I don't know, when you regress and then how you can process your way out of it too. I mean, I think it teaches our kids, like, you guys, I'm, I need a minute myself. You know, I could see teachers doing that in their classrooms. Like, let's all just stop and breathe for a second. <laughs> We're kind of worked up, and if yeah, that's a natural to model that. Yes, there would there'd be so much power in that. Rachel, I don't know if you were going to build off of it. I was just going to say, like, you have to model that for kids. You have to model that for teachers. You have to. I mean, it's not something we would normally do or think about. So you're you're so right in um, saying that. You know, it's just it's something we are constantly working on. And I mean, good for you guys uh, for being vulnerable and being able to like, you know, show kids that you're still struggling with it as an adult. So Mm -hmm. you can't just automatically be happy. And just because you're positive doesn't mean you're happy. So that is like, you know, self-awareness is one of the five social emotional learning competencies. And so when Aaron was talking about his 12 year old self, like he had the self-awareness to know like I'm ramping up, right? And I think as adults and grown-ups, teachers, whatever, um, like we do, we have to capitalize on that instance and give language to it to our kids, right? They have to know like, hey, this happens to everybody. Here's what's happening. Um, and, you know, here's a way I can help myself calm down. But it really all goes back to this idea of success and learning. When we have dysregulated kids, they cannot learn. They can't because all of their attention is in their hind brain or the limbic system, amygdala, whatever you want to call it. And they cannot devote attention to learning. Like they've perceived a threat. They can't get past it. And so, you know, one of the things that Aker uh, talks about in his, in his book is talking about small incremental interventions to start building on a sustainable change. And so, you know, and talking to our kids about dysregulation, like that's a small intervention. I'm giving you the language for what that means, right? Now, another small intervention to build towards more success of handling whatever the thing is, it might be, you know, when I feel this way, when I feel dysregulated, I need to take a step back. So I'm going to do that, right? So in two, we're, it's like a twofold thing. We're giving them the language and start building that self-awareness but also I'm giving you some small, um, you know, small intervention so that I can start building to a change of a regulated state or to a place where I'm ready to start doing something else. And so it's so tied together. Like you can't pull them apart. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're talking about those, those small little things, it, it reminds me of actually of the, the first principle in the book. And so for those that haven't read the book, he provides seven principles for you to kind of work through and navigate. And, and, and it's more than it, it talks about the research and the brain. And then it actually gives you things to be thinking about how to actually like infuse the principles within your life. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of a good segue into what you were just talking about there, Lisa, in terms of the first principle is the happiness advantage. And, and according to the book, the happiness advantage um, states, 
that it's positive brains have a biological advantage over brains that are neutral or negative. And this principle teaches us how to retrain our brains to capitalize on positivity and improve our productivity and performance. And so um, as, as we think about that in this very first one, you know, what were your guys' thoughts and reactions to that? And, and we'll get into it. We can kind of weave this in. So I'll just kind of layer with several several little tidbits and you guys can, can run with it. You know, he talks about in this principle, he talks a lot about the brain research and the positive psychology behind it. But he also talks about some things that we can do. And in there he discusses meditation and exercise, um, the anticipation of something fun, spending money on experiences and not things, um, committing acts of kindness, um, using a signature strength, um, infusing positivity into your surroundings, um, you know, and there's so many other ideas I think that kind of spurred from the book as, as people read it and you need to jump into the, inter- onto the interwebs of all this book and, and information, but what what gravitated to you guys in this principle? Because I think it's, it's obviously it's the first one. I think it's the most important thinking about some ways to, to think about rewiring our brains. We kind of talked about earlier. Um, and then what, what have been some things that you found to be helpful? I mean, you can tackle that however you want. There's about 20 different questions loaded there. So uh, just for the, for the sake of conversation there, just dive right in. Well, I think the brain obviously was a huge part of this chapter. Um, and just the idea that mood can actually change how our visual cortex processes information is pretty crazy. Um, I've not only seen that in myself, but coworkers. I mean, when you're feeling good, you're just more productive. Like, you, I don't know how about you guys, but I, I slap on a podcast and I can get my house clean in like an hour. I'm like, how'd that happen? <laughs> you know? So it's because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something I enjoy with something I don't enjoy, but it masks it, you know? So it's just like, it's just crazy that, 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 that can happen. And, um, I think we've all touched on it here a little bit, but that trauma research, I mean, you can't regulate and it's your brain is not functioning at full capacity when not regulated. So, I mean, We'll get into more about what happiness actually is for each of us, but I just think, you know, that idea of whatever it is, is feeling good for you and your happy spot, like you're just going to be more productive. It's when you're talking about that, Rachel, it's making me think about just at the beginning of this chapter, how he defines happiness and um, just thinking about you putting in a podcast and feeling happy about that while you're doing something productive. Um, he, He defined it as the experience of positive emotions combined with deeper feelings of a meaning and purpose. And so just basically this idea of pleasure, engagement, and meaning, those, those three things together. Um, and so it's, it's making me think about that in your example, you know, when you're cleaning and when you're listening to something that you're finding pleasure in, like, are you having those three? <laughs> totally. Right. Like, dang, never wow. thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like when I think about when I'm the most content in life, it's when I have those three things present, like whether or not it's professionally or personally, I, there's a deeper meaning for me. I'm engaged in whatever I'm in, I'm working toward and I'm actually really excited about whatever those work is, whatever that work is. Um, and I think like the times when I'm down about my work or down about something in my life, it's usually one of those things are missing, right? Like I'm engaging in uh, going through the motions of what the task is in my job, but I don't see like how it's actually going to make a difference. I don't see the bigger meaning behind it, or I can see the bigger meaning behind it, but we're not having any fun. So there's no pleasure 
you know, or it's something that should be making me happy and there's meaning behind it, but I don't, I'm not engaging in it the way I want to. And so I don't, I don't know if you guys have had those same types of things. Well, I think what's interesting about that is that, I mean, not to be like nerdy on the brain again, but it's, that is like part of what this whole principle is about is that you have to have the right fit or the right activity fit for the person in order to make them feel happy. Right. So Aker talks about this uh, idea of priming. Like we can prime ourselves for happiness. We know what the things are that make us feel pleasure or feel engaged or make us feel like we have a purpose. And if you front load that the thing, you, you know, whatever it is, your activity, your work with a priming activity, you can actually feel more engaged or you can feel more pleasure for it. Um, the book, there's a study in there about physicians being primed um, with candy. Like if they had candy before they went into surgery or to work a case, they were 20% more accurate and creative in their problem solving. So like for those people, candy would have been a great primer. Um, you know, for a diabetic, candy probably wouldn't be a good primer. You know what I mean? So you have to mm -hmm. find out what is a good fit for your audience, for your team, for your colleagues to prime them for happiness, you know, like Anne and I um, and Rachel have worked together quite a lot. And we, I find that doing a connector is a good primer for me. Um, you know, we just do some meaningful team building activity where we get to know each other a little bit. And it just makes me feel like, okay, our team has a little bit more purpose. I might have a little bit more fun today. Um, but you have to know the people in order to find the right activity fit to be, to prime them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just think that's fascinating. I used to work with a colleague and I love playing music and it, she hates it. It's a good primer for me, but she, she hated it. She was like, she came up to me before PD one day and she was like, please turn that off. I hate it. I can't think, I can't concentrate. I like, I don't want to do this. So I'm like, okay, I'll turn it off. Um, but you know, those are some of the things that we just generally don't have time for our teachers don't build in time to learn more about their kids and like what their interests are, what makes them happy, you know, um, professionally, those are usually the first things that go because of time, right? But when you think about, you know, happiness, when you're more engaged, like Rachel said, I don't know. I think it's just interesting. Yeah, I think like as you were talking there, Lisa, and, and, and even Anne before, like I was thinking, um, so my wife does this thing in her classroom, not to keep plugging her, but she's like my, my teacher classroom vision thing. And she <laughs> spends the first five minutes every single class just talking to the kids about their day and not everybody agrees with that approach some people believe you just get right into the content you're wasting time um, but her philosophy has been those five minutes save me tons of hours of behavior of you know the list can go on and on and on of negative things because she believes those first five minutes of letting kids know that she cares about them and it takes time it's not like the first week the kids are all hunky-dory about this and it, it takes buy-in uh, but once they have it like there's a there's a natural 
relationship being built. Um, not that you're going to do, you know, every single kid is going to have a voice to share, but everyone has an option. You start to create this space that, that's safe. And I think it builds into even like I think about colleagues of, of adults. I think it's easy to look at um, dysfunctions of students. It's always easy to find all the ways in which kids are wrong or whatever word you want to use. But we as adults struggle in the exact same capacities when we are being forced to work together. And I don't want to dovetail too far away from the book, but as you're talking and about connection to people, and, and Lisa, you're talking about trying to find the right fit with people to do work. Um, I just had this conversation this weekend, actually, um, after an amazing Tiffany Taylor Dane concert, rocking my, my 80s my eighties youth here. Um, but the, we had, I, I read this quote from this guy that said, teamwork only works when everybody actually feels that doing the work solo um, won't lead to the same result. The idea being that, like, say the four of us are in a teamwork, and let's say I don't feel that the work collectively as a group is going to outweigh what I can do by myself, teamwork will never work. And yet we constantly are forcing people to work together, and we got to tell them it's 21st century skills or giddy up or, you know, figure it out. Um, but if you're not seeing an actual gain, the teamwork will never, ever work. And I think I keep thinking I can't get over this. I don't know if I agree or disagree because there's certain things you have to do in life. Um, but I think about like coaching sports teams. I think about all the different committees uh, and groups that we have in our work and everybody has them wherever they work. And I just think about like the ones that truly take off and excel and get a lot of work done. People are committed. And like, why is that? It's like, I think they, they see the positive outweigh the gains of just going, I'm going to ignore, set out this one, you know, not be a good team member because I have quote unquote more pressing matters or I could do a better job myself. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested by, by you guys and not to spend a whole entire podcast on teamwork, but this connection to people um, does fascinate me on, on like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do we find, like you said, Lisa, find the right people or, you know, the right teamwork? Because I think that is a huge piece that all of us are looking for. We just don't always know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I would say when you bring a group of people together, they have to know what their purpose is, right? So, and that's one of those three components, right? For people to feel happy. Um, so they have to know what their purpose is. And the other thing that I think when you bring a group of people together, you have to create um, time and space to, to figure out how you collaborate well together. Um, and what are your roles on the team and what are your responsibilities? Because when you get a bunch of quote unquote experts in the room, you know, adults are different than kids. Adults will play the game quietly and they will do what they're quote unquote supposed to do. But you know that behavior outside of the table or even like snide comments can just totally derail the productivity. So that's one way I think is really um, important upfront to define this is the purpose of our team. Here's what we're looking for in terms of um, just behavior and actions and, and what this is gonna mean to be a part of this team, and then spend some time creating collaborative norms um, so that everyone can at least be um, at consensus on, on what that means. And we don't do that with kids either, right? We, we just say, go do this thing, and they don't know how to work together. So, um, so that, those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, I, I think I would add, um and you were talking a little bit about this before, Lisa, but just taking time to really get to know one another. I think um, just implicit bias when we feel like we're not, we don't have anything in common with or we're not connected to or we're not 
a part of the same group as the people that we're surrounding ourselves with on a day-to-day -day basis. We're not feeling connected to them. We have a harder time being able to listen to one another or work with one another. Um, and so I think in order to foster teamwork, we need to find authentic ways to make connections with one another, to socialize with one another. It actually makes me think about in this first principle um, where they're talking about uh, the bosses who don't encourage you know, social time and who, where the, the employees who are afraid to get caught at the water cooler or, you know, having the conversation during their CTT PLC meeting that doesn't have to do with analyzing data, um, that that's actually backfiring the productivity of teams, right? Because those are the moments where we're authentically making connections with one another. And so I think building in sacred time, whether or not it's adults in a system uh, doing that or, you know, providing that time within a classroom to be able to um, just help people connect um, and get to know one another so that they're able to work together. It's just really important. Well, yeah, I'm, humans are social beings. And my favorite teacher and the teacher that inspired me to become one was one that took time to let us know who she was. You know, and for me, that modeled exactly what I was able to do in the classroom. And I feel I was a successful educator because of it. You know, I still have kids to this day, and I'm sure you guys do too. But kids that are adults now that are on, on uh, teacher awareness week or whatever, appreciation week, they post on Facebook that I was their favorite teacher. I mean, like that's, there's something behind that. Like you gave them something socially that, that's you know, gave them some positivity that gave them meaning. It's, it's all those things. And, and, um, I mean, we can't deny that as, as models for educators or educators ourselves. I mean, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea of acknowledgement. And I, I talk about this a lot too. And even some of my hands-on learning workshops, it's not always acknowledged. It doesn't always have to be positive or negative humans just need to be acknowledged um, in some shape or form, you know, and we can get into, I mean, there's a whole lot to that and maybe that's another book, another podcast, but I mean, I think it comes back to what we all say, whether it doesn't always have to mean we feel good when we get positive praise, but it, we also have also received positive praise that felt uh, forced or not authentic either. And that didn't quite work. It's just, we just want to be noticed like, Hey, someone noticed me, Aaron Maurer, like not for accolades or pat on the back, but just to notice like, Hey, I, I actually, exist in this world in some shape or form and i think we're all doing things for that acknowledgement what whatever however we want to go about trying to to, to seek that out um, i think that's just like an innate um thing that we have built into us um you know and i think that's that's definitely something for us to uh to process i, I want to ask one more question and it's really more out of selfishness out of this principle and then i want to move on to the next principle here because it's one that i i grapple with um and he set the stage and he painted the picture and he gives all the research, but I still, um, in my brain, haven't come to terms with it. And so I want to, to pose it here to this group as well. Um, and, and in this principle, he talks about the idea of happiness and success. Um, and he kind of teases us early on in this chapter asking, does happiness come before success or does success come before happiness? Um, and then later in this chapter, he actually explains um, that, that happiness, you know, 
has to come come first. I still sit in the opposite. And in the book, he paints all the things of why my thinking is wrong. So I'm not here to say that I'm right and he's wrong because I trust his research and his expertise over mine. But in my headspace, um, as I think back on my things, and this is where I'm trying to figure out, like, are my, are my priorities wrong? Um, I mean, it's something I think I need to kind of work through is, like, I feel like my happiness comes um, over success. And I say that with the caveat also knowing that that happiness dies off very quickly, which leads me to another massive to-do list to like keep seeking this out. And so I know that maybe I need to rethink, but I'm curious about you guys on, you know, it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Success or happiness. And, and, and where were you in this? Where are you on this in your continuum? I'm, I'm just curious about this because I think this is something I've never really thought about it till I read it, and then I disagreed, but then I'm thinking, like, but I don't think what I'm doing is working either. Um, so where were you guys in this? Because uh, I, I, I guess I'm looking for, for, for selfish uh, insights to uh, make my headspace better. I feel like I have had a very real um, push on this in the last year just with some marathon uh, marathons that I've ran. Um, like training for them and actually engaging in them and visualizing myself finishing a marathon brings a lot of happiness. I can picture the sticker on the back of my uh, car and like people seeing the sticker and just the accomplishment of doing something that's pretty big like that. Um, and I've ran two in the last year and a half. And the first one that I did, um, I trained for it exactly like I was supposed to. And the day of the race came and went and I finished over five hours. And I was pretty upset about that time. Like in my head, I was going to be a lot closer to between four, four and a half hours. Um, lots of different reasons that didn't happen. Uh, so anyway, I trained for a second one. And the day of that race came. Um, the conditions were perfect. The ambiance was awesome. I had researched fast and flat courses just to like be able to pad my, uh, my goal a little bit better. And I ended up crushing, uh, the, the first time, like my, my goal was to get under five hours for this particular one. And I ended up finishing around four and a half hours. And so, you know, I beat my last time by 40 minutes and I was elated for about a day. <laughs> and then at the, after that day ended, I realized I was without a goal and I was without like, purpose. And I started, I was stressed and I started like, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? What should I be doing next? And like trying to seek something out. And so I don't know, it was a, a realization for me about just like, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's not being happy, but maybe it's just not being content and how, if I don't have something that I'm chasing, then how am I ever going to be happy, right? And so I feel like happiness needs to come first because I can't always be chasing something. Like there's gotta be times where I can just be. So I don't know if anybody else has experienced anything like that, but it's it's just something that I've been grappling with lately is trying to be content in uh, the present or content in just being and not because I'm accomplishing something or I've gained something or somebody's going to, you know, see that I was able to do something, which I have, you know, traditionally been driven by uh, pretty significantly. So I don't know if anybody well, else. 
example. Yeah, totally. The self-care topics that are mentioned in this chapter too, like, you know, taking time to meditate, exercise, just talk about the future. Like, you know, I think for me that in the past year, just slowing down and letting myself do those things has really helped me a lot. Um, because within that is also like, it's not necessarily a goal, but it, it is in the, in the end, it's, it's more about who I'm able to be when I'm working or when I'm with my family rather than like, Oh, worrying about something that I'm supposed to be accomplishing. You know what I mean? Um, I think in our lives we're, we're, set to make goals and you have to be a goal setter like right even as a teacher like let's set a goal well then what if we don't get there you know so I don't know I think just like being able to just slow down focus on the now has really been something for me in the past year and a half that's helped me realize like that's a goal for me as well is to just be more self-aware in the moment and try to find um, happiness (laughs) in right now. Well, I think there's just, I just feel like this is a mind game question. Mm -hmm. And then Aaron, you kind of talked about that too. Just like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Am I right if I say success? Am I wrong if I say success? But, you know, something that really resonated with me when I was reading this was when, um, our author was talking about salesmen never really being, happy, but never really being successful either because they hit a target, their target gets changed. They, you know, they sell all this stuff. Well, now they have to sell more. They make this much money, then they have to make more. Um, You know, when you're on a diet, you want to lose weight and then you want to lose more. And then you beat yourself up if you gain a couple pounds. Like this idea of being content with your current reality um, is really difficult. I think we, we have so much pressure visually around us. Um, like Facebook, I hate, but I'm like addicted to it because, you know, you see these like perfect people want you to see only the good. And then you think there's only good and like, you must be sucking. Right. And so then that just adds more pressure and it takes away happiness. But, um, you know, when you, when you keep changing your goal, like, are you ever winning? You know what I mean? Like the, 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 sales guy example like does he ever feel like he's winning if he knows he hits a target and then the target's going to get moved and he's going to have to sell 10 more 10 more things or 10 grand more like how do you ever feel successful if that ever if that never stays attainable I don't know I don't even know if that's making sense but it's just this idea of like self-care and mindfulness can we be thankful for what we have can we feel success with what we have right now. And is that okay? Like, I mean, does that, how do we make sure that we feel okay with that when we know not to judge ourselves by society or other people, yet we do it all the time? All the time. Um, you know, and I think it maybe it maybe this this rolls right into the next principle, the fulcrum and the lever, um, because in the that that actual principle, I think helps you navigate that kind of philosophical question, right? Happiness or success. Um, and, and in there, I mean, that principle, I'll just lay it out and then maybe we can get, we'll just keep this conversation moving, but maybe with this principle in mind is, you know, it says like how we experience the world and our, our ability to succeed within um, constantly changes based on our mindset. And so this principle, the fulcrum of the lever, says this principle teaches how we can adjust our mindset, which is the fulcrum, in a way that gives us the power, the lever, to be more fulfilled and successful. And so I think um, those questions that you're grappling with there, Lee, 
Lisa uh, or Anne with the idea of, of, you know, being content and, you know, that, that feeling of accomplishing the marathon. And I did the same thing. I used to train like crazy for triathlons. Um, I could never be fast enough. I was always grind, 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 grind until I was putting in 40 hours a week. And I was like, oh, wait, I actually do have children and a wife um, that don't just need to see me constantly coming and going off the bike or swimming or whatever it might be. Um, and so how do we grapple with that? I mean, so let's just keep that, that, that idea in mind, but with this idea of the fulcrum, the lever, um, you know, and I see it, whether it's people doing it with, with training, uh, but I also see it with, with work, um, you know, and I think in education, we see it, we f- there is this, this pressure, whatever role we are, whether we're an administrator, an educator, um, a consultant in, in, in our realm where if we're not always on not always working like we're not we're not doing enough like there always there's always more to like the job is, isn't over you know and i used to be and i i i still say this but now i say it um with asterisks behind it that i always b- believe that like teaching is a lifestyle not a job like it's just part of like who you are you're always doing it whether you realize you're doing it or not but at the same time you can easily find yourself working 18 20 hours um and not taking care of the other things you know and i look at like for me um it's really been my health like i have discarded my health huge amounts um even more at the AEA, but towards the end of my, like when I was working at a middle school, just let, I've just let it go. Um, and it, and it kind of leads into another idea, which we, we glossed over. Like, like I know what I need to do. Um, <laughs> you know, like I read this book and I know that meditation is helpful. Um, I know that exercise is important. Um, I know that my weight is not healthy if I want to live to be 90 years old. Um, <laughs> But yet, I'm not doing it. So how do I change the fulcrum and the lever? How do I find this balance? How do I learn to say no? Um, you know, all those things. And so where were you guys? I guess we you know continue where we were just talking about, but also with this principle kind of infused in. What gravitated to you? How do you adjust your fulcrum and the lever? How do you actually start to move this stuff from not just knowledge but into uh, application? What's, like, drawing to my mind right now? as I'm listening to you set this up, Aaron, is just this idea of um, either or, or that all of those great things that you're talking about have to be separate from the daily grind, right? And then I listen to you say that um, it's a calling. And I'm, I, it's making me think about how do we infuse those things, the things that are healthy into the work that we do so that it doesn't feel like work is a grind so that it does feel like it's something that's satisfying. And so, I mean, we started talking a little bit about it earlier um, with just like bringing in mindfulness into our work and like having very intentional moments where we can stop and breathe or I'm thinking about exercise, like, there's stand-up desks and how could we build in more movement into learning so that our kids aren't sitting there sedentary or we're not as teachers sitting at our desk sedentary or, you know, those of us that are working at the AEA when we're sitting in our hours and hours and hours of meeting, like how do we build in time so that we have more movement because it's good for our health and like we're infusing it into our world, um, our profession. It's also making me think just about our passions, like the times when I'm feeling most satisfied in my work, it's when my passion of creativity is coming in 
to that as well. And so I think a lot of times I feel like I have to save that passion for outside of like, I do my work. I'm really passionate about my work. I'm excited. You know, there's ups and downs with that, but I really get to create outside, right. When I'm crafting or doing whatever. Um, and just like being intentional about how can I make those two worlds merge. And so I don't, it's just something that as you were talking right there, it was making me think about, does it have to be an either or how could you marry um, just those different principles that are healthy for your brain, your body and uh, build it into your day as well. I think that we don't, ask for what we want slash need yeah like we just you know like and I don't know why I don't know if it's you know our culture if it's our time if it's whatever but like we don't set boundaries period well I haven't for a really long time it's something I'm, I'm really working on and it's not just at work um but you know at at home and with friends and with social life like Setting boundaries is healthy and asking for what you want or need is healthy. Like, but why don't we do that? Like, you know, if we ask for a stand up desk, I bet we'd get one. Like, I think it's this idea of, of like, you know, but that's setting a boundary, right? With yourself. It's saying, I'm not going to actually accept this current condition because I don't feel like it's healthy for myself. Right. I don't feel like it's healthy for productivity or whatever. So let's ask for it. And then if we don't get it, then what? But like, I never thought about asking. I would, oh, it'd be nice to have a stand-up desk. Like, I never asked for one. But then that interesting because I like, as you're just talking there, not to interrupt your thought, but like, like what happens if they say no? Yeah. We're right back to where we are. Like, we de- it's actually not even a risk to ask because the worst thing that happens is they say no and we're currently where we are. Like, it's not like we're going to regret. Like, we know that the conditions aren't ideal. Um, but if they st- look at us and, and say, say the worst thing, they would never do this, but say they laugh at us and like, you've got to be kidding me. We're right back to where we are right now and just go, okay, so, so then now what? Like, and I think that's, what's so fascinating about all this. Like, like we know the knowledge, like, and yet we still are frozen to even ask a question. Like, we're not going to pick it and riot and hold up fences going, where's our stand-up desk? Like, like, but we... we it's illegal to strike in Iowa. But we're not even bold enough to just ask the question to find out, like, yeah. what if they say yes? Then it's like, but I think this comes back to something even bigger. Because if we ask and they say yes, then we have to act upon our thoughts. And I see this time and time again, and maybe it even builds into the, the, the next principle, which we'll hold off here in a second. But, like, it's easier... To complain or critique, and I'm not saying we're doing this, but I'm just, but in, in general, as adults or, or kids, like critique and complain about it, but we really don't want anything to happen because if it does, then we actually have to change our habits. And that is the, yeah. the, the, the scariest thing for people. I'd rather sit here and complain that we sit for four hours a day. I could stand up. I could, I could pace in the back. I could, there's lots of things I could do. I bet if I brought in a treadmill, no one's going to ask me to leave it. Like, but yet, we're frozen. You know, we can't even ask that question. But it's fascinating. And then I'm going to stop talking because I feel like I'm being an airtime hog. Like, nerding back and grounding back into the book, like, that is actually called anchoring. Like, you take your initial uh, assumption, your initial belief, and then you perseverate on it and you overgeneralize it, overgeneralize it. And it's called anchoring, right? So basically what it is is, like, you think something sucks or it's hard the first time. 
And that is your assumption, your mindset, your mental model around the thing. And it just keeps like, okay, that's what it is. It just sucks. So then every time you want to engage in it or you think about it, you're like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it from one negative experience. And so it comes back to this idea of like, how do we rethink or how do we rewrite the story of something that happened? It's easier to stick in a negative pattern than it is to create a new path, right? That comes back to this idea of eating and exercising. Like, I know 21 days is what you need to create a new habit. I don't want to deal with the 21 days. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, but it comes back to, like, this deeper question. And, like, so I, I look at, like, yeah, I want to lose weight, get back healthier. You know, that's something that I'm trying to strive for. I, I guess it's New Year's resolutions, but even beyond that. But at the same time, I've been grappling with this for, like, three years um, and so then it comes back to like the truth when I look at myself in the mirror going, but, but do you really, because if you really wanted to, you would do it because you know how to do it. You, you've lived that life. So it's like, am I convincing myself? Because if that's the case, you know, then I want to snarf down a, but I want to snarf down a, a bag of cherry sour balls for breakfast this morning and then going, Hmm, I wonder why this scale just doesn't read the numbers that I want. Like figure it out guy. Let's go. You know? Like, I am your parallel in a woman. Because I'm like, you know what? Seven years ago, you weighed, like, 60 pounds less, right? You ran the Bix in 57 minutes. Like, why are you job of the hut right now? And it's like, is my picture of success that girl? She was a totally different girl, totally different life. Like, I have to change my picture of what success looks like. Like, when you talk about the fulcrum and the lever, right? Like, you know small incremental interventions lead to sustaining change. Like I know if I get on the treadmill for 20 minutes, I'm not going to lose a pound. Will my blood pressure over time go down because it was like 180 over 111? Like those are small incremental changes and interventions that will lead to a sustaining change. But I have to change the picture of success in my head because it's not going to be that girl because she's gone. She's gone. (laughs) Well, and it's about, you know, how much potential and power we believe we possibly have, which then moves our fulcrum, which is our mindset, in which we generate the power to change. So, I mean, it's it goes hand in hand. It's where our fulcrum is on that on that continuum that, that will change our leverage. So Yeah, and I think sometimes your fulcrum lives in the past or it lives in the future. But a lot of times it doesn't live like right, right now. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so we're always like searching for what we, what we want to happen or like you're in your example, Lisa, like what success was 15 years ago. And so I think like part of it is shifting that fulcrum to where, what's our current reality. Yeah. And that comes back to the happiness. Like, can you just be happy or content with what you are, what you have, whatever the thing is now, and then make, and this is in the book somewhere too, but he talks about it. Like in order to be happy, you have to be accepting of your current reality. And that doesn't mean that you can't make attainable goals or, you know, want to change things, but just like, can you be, just be, can you just be happy? Can you have contentness? And then find one small thing to change, right? Right. And maybe not even like be happy with it, but just like acknowledge that that's what it is. Yeah. Like it's your current reality. Yeah. Just accept it. 
and I don't know if I read this in this book or it was something else that I was reading. Um, so I wish I could give the source. I'll have to try to find it for the show notes. But this idea of like happiness comes back to like when we talk about being happy, we haven't really defined happiness yet. But um, this idea, it doesn't mean that we're like full of joy and smiling. Um, and I can't remember if, it, like I said, the book or something else I was reading. But this idea of happiness is, is not that, it, but it's living a life of intention. Um, and to me, that really resonates because I think there's like a, a misconception in that when we talk about the happiness advantage or, or being happy. Um, because it's it's not realistic to always wake up every day and want to do cartwheels and, and feel like you know like like you're living in the movie Trolls you know going through this life like but it's having an intention and it comes back to like this fulcrum and lever and something that I'm, I'm scribbling down in my notes is maybe um, I was writing a thing down here actually it was like don't create goals but like analyze the fulcrum and the lever like as I'm writing out my my stuff for my my theme for the year I'm creating these goals and like really what I should be focusing on is like where's the fulcrum and the lever where am I at now and where do I ideally want that to be I guess in a roundabout way it's a goal but really it's not about I need I want to weigh this or or you know I want to read x amount of books but it's like where am I putting that intention in my life because I think something that's important and then I want to be respectful of time to get to the other principle here is um, you know earlier I talked about the idea like like that the job can become a grind and then I, I don't want it to sound like like people are dissatisfied with their jobs the reason that people especially in education will put 16 18 20 hours into their work because they're passionate about it and they love it like it's not a burden in that sense like but it my fear is that that's that's not sustainable um, it's not a sustainable way of living. And at some point you do start to burn out and it does feel like a grind. And I think about how many people, when I walk into a school or I walk into one of our meetings, like, how are you doing? The typical response, whether it's because we think we need to answer this way and, or because we feel it is, oh my gosh, I have so much going on. I have yada, 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 yada. And I always want to pause. And I've started to do this to some people um, that I'm comfortable with and going like, but you chose that. Because you said yes to all those things. So your life of intention is, if that's really causing you that much burden, where, like you said, Lisa, or maybe it was Anne, where do we create boundaries, whatever that looks like, that at this point, my cup's full. And I simply have to say no, even if I love it, I'm passionate about it, I can't do it because there's a sacrifice on the other end, whether that's health, wealth, family, my me time, whatever it might be, and I think that's something um, that we all have to grapple with um, because we it's very easy to keep saying yes to things that we love, but you lose out on 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 loved ones as a result. Yeah, that's really huge because again, it you're saying yes to the things that you love and that you're passionate about, right? And so, just how do you balance that? And you know back to what lisa was saying before about just the self-awareness part too is you know knowing when you're getting to that to where you're just going to tip over the edge of the cup if you take on one more thing that you're excited about but it might be enough so it's interesting because i just kind of want to pose this question like happiness and success like does your family life happiness mean less than your work-life success. My husband's like, I get the worst version of you. Like every day, I get the worst version of you. And like, our family is the most important thing. But 
I get the worst version of you because everybody else gets the word yes. Like every, you do all the things for all the other people, you know, and that's part of the reason why I'm like, eh, like, does it matter if I'm one of the better facilitators of professional learning? Like who cares? If my husband's like, I love you and I feel empty because you are an empty vessel when you come home. Like, you know, so obvious, I mean, coming back to happiness and success, like who cares if you have success, if you're miserable? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, (laughs) no, no, it's deep, but I think, but I think it resonates, you know, whether it, no matter who you are or, or your family dynamics or any of that is like, you know, I, I don't believe that there's this perfect balance. Uh, I, I believe my own philosophy on things is like there's an ebb and flow. There are times where work does have to take, say, 60% of your time or 70% of your time. Um, and family does have to take a back burner or your me time has to take a back burner. But then you have to make sure that you flow that back. And, and yeah. I don't believe you're ever going to create this perfect pie chart or scale where it's 50% family, 50% work or whatever it is. But it's my, my fear and where I look at is I, I've been working really hard and I feel like I've gotten much better at it is my leverage is always like this. Um, for me, it was work and travel and, and, and trying to get on to the, you know, doing workshops and keynotes and things. And like, that was a form of validation for my work. Um, and now I've, I've sat with my wife, we've created, we've created boundaries on the expectations and, and we have shrunk it and made it better. Um, and I have said no to things at work and it, people get mad. Like that's the other thing that sucks about this too. And, um, people get upset and they, you sometimes look like you're not a team player, but it's like, but I need to make sure that I, I, I get to my kids events. My kids are going to be in school for X amount of time. You know, I'm looking at my son, like he's got three and a half years and he's out of this house. Like that is scary as all get out to me. Um, you know, like my youngest one is only going to like me for about another year before she starts to hit that weird adolescent <laughs> age. And you know, dad's not cool. You know, dad that builds Legos is not going to be cool for much longer. Um, you know, so it's just all those things that I think are, you know, and I say that knowing that when I come home and wake up in the morning, like I feel like I've had my, my best year in this job as a result of that, knowing that I've caused maybe some frustration in people when I sit back and don't say yes to everything. Um, and I know that that work then gets pushed on other people and that kills the guilt in me. That's, that does eat me up a little bit going, if I say no, um, somebody else is going to have to pick that up. And so, you know, am I then throwing more work or burden on someone else of someone, that, you know, of other colleagues that, that, that you care about, you know, it's this weird kind of like never ending cycle. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's where I'm at and where, where I'm trying to get, get to get to be better at. Yeah. So let's do this. We, we've had a phenomenal conversation and um, we're kind of hitting our, our time limit here. So I think we're going to freeze on these principles and what we'll do is we'll, we'll have another episode. We'll weave them into the next one. We'll, we'll figure things out, but I think we've given ourselves lots to think about and you the listener plenty to think about here um within this particular episode so let's freeze at these two i think these two are potentially some of the deepest ones and the rest all naturally build off of these um as we kind of get get through these these other principles but as we wrap up and just be respectful of your time are there any final thoughts or things lingering in your brain that you want to share maybe we'll just kind of do like a round robin around um and then we'll kind of wrap this up and uh you know, let everybody kind of chew on these deep thoughts that we've just bombarded them with here on this uh, first episode. It's been really, really good. Anybody want to go first? 
So, um, you know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but um, maybe just in personal conversation, but, um, you know, we're reading this as an agency, but um, I chose to read it for personal reasons, you know, just with a lot of changes happening in the past couple of years of my life. And um, I think if anything, you know, that really sticks out to me thus far, um, not having read the last two principles, but, um, is just that, that balance is huge. I mean, we can't always be happy. And he says that several times throughout the book, but we can't always be happy and that's okay. But it's then about being able to bounce back after that. Um, I feel like I'm more humble just having these ideas, um, you know, with me as I, as I read the, the chapters. And I think, that I have to be okay with not being perfect or not being the one that always says yes. And I feel like it's making me a better um, person at home and at, and at work because I know that when I, I have the time to say yes, I will. And then when I don't have the time to say yes, I won't, you know, and it's okay. And then I notice it in other people as well. So it's opened my mind um, a little bit that way and just let me know that um, if I do come to a hardship or something that I'm struggling with that that there are ways out of it and um, that I can also help others get through their tough times as well. I think you hit on a key thing there too, Rachel, is that idea. Like, I'm glad that there's several people for us in our work. And if you use a listener, if you're reading this, like having other people that you work with read this, because I think if we all start to intentionally plan, like the idea that it's okay to say yes and no, and collectively we all feel that way, I think it becomes safer and people are more understanding. And I think um, the reason we all say yes is we don't want to let each other down. We don't want to... Um, you know, disappoint. These, these are all things that I think are just DNA of educators, whatever your job title is, let alone humans. Um, but I think it's it's so important, you know. And for me, um, one of the things that I've taken out of this book as I'm trying to wrap around my themes and goals for, for this year coming up um, is I have this statement I got from a podcast, Rachel, so I get a lot of work done on podcasts as well, um, is uh, I'll have to find the link and link it in. But this guy in this podcast um, said, You're, you should have um, every day when you wake up to have a great day by noon. And that I've wrote this down on my note cards. I write note cards. I know listeners can't hear it, but I have these stacks of note cards when I listen to podcasts. And that is like truly my my daily um, reminder. So what does that look like? For me, it is going to be, I'm going to try to learn how to meditate or it's reading 20 minutes or it's going to go walk on the, it's, it's going to be something of me time. Um, where I struggle is I get up at four o'clock and I will literally do work until 630 in the morning. I get my kids ready and then I go to work, you know, and then like, and that four to six used to be errand time. It used to be when I was exercising or doing whatever it was that I was doing. And now I have like, I wake up and go, Oh my gosh, I got to get ready. I got You know, I was like, but if I don't do that, like life will still go on. Like I will be okay. I will not be fired. I'm, I'm still putting in a lot of time. Um, you know, and so for me, it's giving myself that time back, that permission. So my goal is have a great day by noon, because if you have a great day by noon, then the, whatever happens, happens the rest of the day, you, you, you've already checked it off. Like it's, it, it won't, 
not not be a good day. I don't know if that's proper grammar or not. You know, like <laughs> if I get out and I, I get to read for, for 20 minutes and I get to exercise and I get to have my good cup of coffee and, you know, like that's a good day. Like whatever else happens, it's all right. I had a good day and I get to do that every day. And so um, to me, I think that's something as I'm thinking through this book and these two, you know, all the different suggestions he gave and the happiness event, the principle one of that, like those are things I'm going to try to figure out what works for me. I have to like rediscover myself again. Um, and I don't know what that is. I might fail at meditation. Maybe it's not for me. I don't know. I'm just going to be trying all these things to figure out what clicks for me at this stage in life, because what I, what used to work isn't working anymore. So I have to like rediscover myself. So I kind of want to just, uh, add on to that and then kind of give my final thoughts on the book too, is just that, you know, you and Rachel both just talked about defining what, your happiness is right. Like Aaron, you talked about like, ha- you know, be uh, whatever before noon. Let's have a great day before noon. Like you just listed out like five things that would make you have a great day before noon. It's just setting the boundary, right? Or maybe it's moving the fulcrum or moving the lever so that you can make it happen. And you know, I I resonate with that too, Aaron. You know, I know like the five minute uh, gratitude journal. My husband has done the Miracle Morning, and it's just really about being intentional, living with intention, and choosing how your day starts. Right? If I let if I sleep, and my six year old comes in and jumps on on me, like I'm automatically irritated. But I have the power to change that. Right? I have the power to set the alarm and get up. It's just like doing it, and so. Uh, you know, Rachel, you talked a lot about introspection and and how this book has touched you in that way. Um, and that's a big takeaway for me, too. And then I think the last my last thoughts would just be um, kind of in in spirit of changing the fulcrum and lever or moving the fulcrum fulcrum and the lever, not just within yourself, but with the people around you. Um, you know, we don't take a lot of time to express our belief and appreciation um, in other people. And um, the book talks about that being the Pygmalion effect, just that uh, our belief in another person's potential will actually bring that potential to life. And we, you know, from education ease, know that through teacher collective efficacy that has one of the largest effect sizes. It's 1.57. Like we have to help people, kids, teachers, coworkers, see their own potential and feel value and worth um, so that they can be successful. And so when I think about this from a personal lens, you know, that's one thing I can do, but also then from a larger organizational lens, like how do we, how do we do that? How do we um, intentionally and purposefully and often make sure the people that we work with know um, how great they are and what we think they're capable of doing. I think it's just really important. I think maybe the only thing I would add, because everything that you guys said resonates with me, um, and I could build off each one of those different points, but uh, maybe a last thing I would add um, would be going back to that idea that Lisa was talking about um, an hour ago, just about priming. And so I this we'll get into this um, when we talk about the third principle, but just this idea of maybe starting things, looking through that positive lens, or doing things that to be able to shift uh, the fulcrum so that we're looking through it with, with a positive uh, framework. I mean, I can think of lots of different situations where I go into something 
thinking I know how it's going to turn out and it's not necessarily a positive outcome or like with Lisa's example, you know, getting angry because I'm woken up too early. Um, and so just being able to have awareness of when I'm seeing myself go into those moments and being able to think, look for intentionally look for positives or to, you know, start a meeting, like, what are we excited about accomplishing in the next hour? Just set our intentions, you know, that way together as a group and just doing things like that. So again, just priming, I think, um, will be, is really huge. And then the very last thing, reiterating what, uh, Rachel said, and Aaron, you said it too. Happiness isn't necessarily being elated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Like it's going to ebb and flow. Um, so I think just like acknowledging that and accepting that um, and then using strategies when we're finding that the dips are going lower and um, for longer periods of time than the, the peaks are. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, um, you know, as we, as we kind of come to a closer for the show, I just want to personally thank all of all three of you for being vulnerable and sharing your ideas. You know, it's, 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 it's safe to talk about stuff through the professional lens, I think for the most part for a lot of people, but to weave that into the personal. And I think as a listener, if any, take nothing else, like it's, it's all blended anymore. No matter what we do, whatever profession is like these, these lines are all blurred the day where you you got up and you went to work, you checked in, you checked out, you came back. Like those days don't exist. Um, And so I think it just makes it murkier. And it also is a call that it's more important more than ever before to figure out you know how to kind of set these boundaries and figure out who you are and what you want to be and 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 what works for you and i think um we're at a time whether we're 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 kids or adults wherever it is um in in our life to to kind of rethink these and so as we wrap this up i just wanted to to personally thank all of you um for for taking that time to be vulnerable and, and, and to share those ideas and for you the listener Make sure you check the show notes on the coffeeforthebrain.com backslash 111. Um, in there, you're going to see links to everything that we've talked about or referenced. Um, and there's also going to be spaces for you to leave comments, whether you can just want to share out that you resonate, uh, share your stories. Um, there's places to ask questions. And what we'll do in the next episode is, is start with those. What are the things that, that you, the listener, um, had questions on, want to hear more about or dive into? And, and we'll continue to explore these, these principles um, because I think they're things that we're all grappling with no matter who we are um and it's just trying to you know find some answers for ourselves and and just like everything in life what works for me isn't going to work for you but together collectively sharing might be the trigger or the spark that leads to the idea that does help so make sure you check those out and uh you know continue to follow along if you haven't started reading the book it's a great time to uh jump in and 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 join us and and we'll continue to have these conversations um here on the podcast in the in the upcoming weeks as we go through so thank you um and rachel and lisa for taking time to uh chat and i I can't wait to hear what the listeners think and uh wish you all the most success clearly i'll see you obviously in work but as you're trying to figure out what your advantage to happiness is uh going to be thank you Aaron. happy new year
was that not incredible? Those conversations were thought so authentic, so genuine, um, and the people were so vulnerable that I hope that you found a lot to take away from that episode. I have just the last couple, few little thoughts and ideas, announcements, calls to action, and then we'll get you out of here. Number one, we'd love to hear from you. So please share your thoughts, your questions, your ideas. This is the start. It's not just making a, a passive podcast, but an element of a community. And so we would love to hear from you. So you can head to the episode page at coffeefortheBrain.com backslash 111. Go to the show notes for this episode. You're going to scroll down. You can leave a comment on that page. I have a flip grid for you to leave video messages. You can email me however you want to get in contact. And we want to use those in the next episode. The next episode, we're going to be sharing uh, the next principles of the book. And so we want to feature that. We want to start with some listener feedback, questions, insights. I think it helps going to build this, make it more genuine, and start to build this community. The other thing is to check out Coffee and Chapters and Coffee Chug. The link is also in the show notes about the future books that we're going to be discussing this year. And so I have books mapped out through May, and I have people signing up to want to discuss those books with me. I also have a list of other books I like to read throughout the year. And so if you're interested in one of those books, you want to join a roundtable discussion, reach out to me, let me know. We can book, we can schedule and organize to have it ready to go um, for you to come along and join us. And even if you want to, want to do the roundtable, at least you can see the books, you can read the books, so when you listen to the podcast, it all makes sense, and maybe that's where you get involved. You leave a listener uh, comment or feedback or question. So, last and final thing, the thing that everybody hates doing, but we all do it, um, I'd also be so grateful if you'd rate the podcast on iTunes. I mean, it helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible, so other people who have never heard of it can discover it. Um, as well as you just sharing it. You know, the, the biggest uh, kind of promotion is, is word of mouth. And so if you're enjoying these episodes, please let other people know. Well, that's it for this episode of Living in the Edge of Chaos podcast. Stay awesome, my friends. Keep pushing the boundaries of what you're capable of achieving. And until next time, stay awesome.